Another fabulous introduction from my friend Valerie Gordon. I am so grateful for this opportunity to chat with my friend Lisa Lackey, who um, I met through LinkedIn and through Valerie Gordon. And um, you are going to really enjoy this podcast episode. We are going to dive into some really fun stories. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Sarah. Well, you know, one of the reasons I immediately wanted to have you on my podcast was after our first conversation, you said something that really kind of, um, it, it tickled this thought that I've been having in my head for at least 10 years about <laughs> authenticity and that it's malleable, that authenticity isn't a rigid thing and that you have to allow for transformation. And if you have this rigid idea of what your authentic self is, then you have no room for transformation. And in our first conversation, we were talking about how you were transforming from your previous career into what you're looking for in the next iteration of this adventure that we call life. And um, I'm just so eager to kind of dive into that, that aspect of where you are. Well, I, I'm, I'm flattered that you're, you're interested in how I, I am transforming. I think, you know, as women, it's so much harder sometimes to allow ourselves to make these transformations because we are so set in what society has always expected from us. And I'm happy to say that obviously that is changing as we, well, I don't know about lately. I feel like we're going, we're going <laughs> backwards, hurtling mm. backwards to a different time, even before I was born. But that's a whole nother podcast, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I I just, I completely agree with you about authenticity. And I happen to listen to your podcast about that specifically. I remember reading the Atlantic, article in The Atlantic, which I think Michelle Obama repeated very recently about not being able to have it all at once. And as women, I think that that's, uh, that really helped me to understand what was going to be in store for me as time went on as I could have it all. I just couldn't have it at the same time. And so it's been very hard for me to be authentic, if you will, um, when I feel very restrained and unable to move and, un and unable to um, move on with what I want to be doing based on the fact that I am a single mother with two children. You know, I don't think enough of us talk about that about the fact that we can't be at all, all at the same time, or we're going to do everything part way. Yes. And it's, it's interesting to me because I think you can do, you can have a career and have kids at the same time. Mm -hmm. The question is, you know, what is the priority and who is going to help support you if you want to do both at the same time? I, I think to a certain extent we can, but we have to have the support of the employer and our team and the partner that's supposed to be helping us raise the children or whatever <laughs> that means. And that's, and I, I mean that because I've supposed heard some be. yeah. horror stories in, in recent years, but um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to think about, but that said, um, I do see some real potential for transformation now in this current time for women to be able to take on the priorities that they want to take on in a way that I don't think we had access to 30 years ago or 20 years ago. 
Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think the pandemic really um, shone a light on, although women were the the women were the ones that had to leave the workforce in droves. I mean, we literally right. went, we went backwards. So as great as the pandemic was in in terms of that silver lining where we all got to you know reimagine what our careers were looking like um, and be able to stay at home, uh, we also lost a lot. And we lost that progress that we'd been making where we were able to be at the office and we were fighting for childcare and we were fighting for, you know, rights and all that kind of stuff. And I think that all changed. And I think, again, you know, we're only looking at the people that were lucky enough to be able to stay at home and work from home. Mm-hmm. There was, you know, millions of women that couldn't do that, that were in direct service in some way in the service industry or whatever it might be that, that wasn't an option. They didn't. They didn't get to come home to a shiny rose-colored MacBook and just open it up and start their day. Right. There was, you know. So I um. And I mean, you know, I I, for me, I I primarily left what I was doing. I left a successful career because I realized that most of it was the ability to be able to take off and work on location. And I was very clear about the fact that as a mother, this was even before my divorce, as a mother, I didn't want to do that. I I, I, I don't begrudge anybody who does that because I think I'm sure it must be quite fun to have your kids on set with you. But I, you know, I'm one of those women that I really wanted to not raise my children the way I wanted to just correct the mistakes that were made with me. And I was so adamant that I was there with them every single minute. And then if you throw you know, divorce into that, which I wasn't expecting. It's not what I signed up for. All of a sudden I'm a single parent having my children 70% of the time. And that was not an option. I mean, literally not an option. There was no way that I was going to be able to do that regardless of whether I had money or not. It just wasn't feasible. So all of a sudden I was mourning the career that the only career that I'd ever known. And I, and I, I was right at the height of my career. That was the hardest part. I was, I was right there just ready to soar and be able to then give myself the freedom to do all the other things that I was interested and passionate in. And that just came to a absolute standstill very fast. Uh, It's kind of amazing how divorce and that's a transformation conversation all its own, isn't it? I think they all are. Everything we've talked about could all just be one whole series of podcasts. (laughs) exactly 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 well let's let's back up a little bit um I love where this is going and we can dive in a little deeper but I would like to start with my traditional question which is you know sharing something about yourself that most people don't know about something that's not on your LinkedIn profile your bio or maybe the IMDB database right (laughs) um but I would love to hear what you have in mind for that to answer that question yeah, I think I I I really struggled with this one because I knew ahead of time that I would I would have to answer this and and I had to ask people. I, I had to say to people that were very close to me, you know, what is something surprising about me that you you found surprising when you first met me? And um and they were like, Well, you know, I think the general consensus was that I was always a little bit embarrassed about what I did as a profession. And that I was very reluctant to talk about it. And that always seems strange to people because I think I've learned as time gone, has gone on that being, being an actor and, and being successful and, and, and that, that being the only work that you have to do apparently is quite, um, 
is something that a lot of people would like to do, especially in Los Angeles. And that's why people come here. So when people would ask me what I did, I, I wasn't sort of very quick to tell them what I did. I sometimes made it up, which was a problem sometimes because I would actually inevitably be talking to somebody who was in that profession that I had made up. And I realized I couldn't sustain the lie any longer. Oh. Because it was just embarrassing. Um, Ouch. <laughs> but, but I think that, um, I think the thing that, um, I think my trip to Africa is the thing that people go, you did what? And it's even to this day, when I talk about it, they say, why did you do that? Why, what, what made you want to do that when you were, you know, in the middle of, you know, building a career and you decided you just wanted to completely leave and, and, you know, tell everyone that you were going and you went off and you, did this volunteer trip by yourself into the middle of nowhere in West Africa. And that ironically was the very trip and the very experience that completely turned my life around and made me understand that I didn't, why I possibly was embarrassed. So I didn't know that at the time why I was embarrassed to mm -hmm. say I was an actor. And then once I was there, I realized, oh, I think I understand this now because talking about authenticity, I realized that possibly I what I was always felt so embarrassed about was that I wasn't being authentic in and 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 I agree that we can be authentic in different ways it, we're not fixed in our authenticity but for me at that time in my life I wasn't being authentic does that make sense it absolutely makes sense and um I'm not surprised by that, by your discomfort at sharing what you did for your career, um, I, I understand it. I'm, I appreciate it. I guess is the word I'm looking for. I can appreciate that discomfort of telling people I'm an actor, mm. especially because um, I, I know a lot of us out there who do um, unusual things, like the communication work that I do with people. I had to come up with a word to describe what I do. And the word coach just happened to, to seem to fit. But to this day, I hesitate when people say, what do you do? And I say, I'm a coach and they assume that it's life coach. And that is a, there are people who do a phenomenal job at that with that title, mm -hmm. man, it has come across as such a, with such negative connotations in the last few years, a life coach, because there's no licensing around it. You can you can call yourself a life coach and have zero credentials. Right. Nobody can do anything about it. I mean, right. it, it's a buyer beware situation. So this I think a very similar thing could come across with actor, unless then you'd have to go into all this depth about the successes that you've had. Otherwise the word actor could mean anything really. No, and lots of people call themselves actors. <laughs> absolutely. And I think there's such a stereotype. And I found that when I came to LA because I'm Australian, you know, Australians were the flavor of the month at that time. We were all coming over in, in droves. And um, 
you know, so it was, it was very, it was just always hilarious to me that I was just one of the many Australian actors that was, you know, I was accused of taking people's jobs. I was accused. And I always felt like I had to explain myself. I had to explain the part about the fact that I, you know, had to prove that I was an alien of extraordinary ability, which was ridiculous in and of itself. And I had to prove that I was in the top 1% of my profession, which I always thought was very funny because you didn't have to prove that you were really good at what you did. You just had to prove that you were very popular and you had to, right. And you, so there was no credibility attached to this. It was simply that you had to have collected enough publicity and won enough awards, if if that was what you were doing, um, that you could prove that you were you had the a high the highest profile in the top mm-hmm. when, top one percent of your profession in that country. It didn't matter what you were doing, and and also it was a timing thing. You know, I came over here before nine eleven, and after nine eleven, it was very hard to get a green card. And I watched everyone else I knew marry people to get one. I shouldn't be saying that, oh. but. That's what people did back then. And, you know, and I always had to, I always had to feel like I had to defend myself. It's like, no, I, I, I feel I did earn this and I feel I'm here legitimately. I'm, I'm paying my taxes. I don't want to take anybody else's job. I just want to work. I don't want, I haven't got a competitive bone in my body. I don't want to win an Oscar. I just want to work as an actor. That's all. But I hated having to do that every time. And I think that that stereotype that actors are neurotic and they they drink too much and they, you know, they just want to be famous. And I think, unfortunately, now with social media, that it's so much harder to defend yourself because that seems so prevalent now. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the, the whole squeaky wheel thing. Right. The, what we know of Hollywood are the most famous actors that are in the tabloids all the time and in the news all the time. And we rarely see the actual working actors <laughs> that are going to work every day oh, and doing yes. their thing and coming home and living in a relatively normal life when it comes mm-hmm. to paying their bills and living in a home and having kids. And yes. we don't see a lot of that. It, it, I, I think of it also in terms of like how people stereotype people from a different country. You know, people say, oh, those people in Paris are so rude. And I'm like, have you ever <laughs> been to Newark, New Jersey? <laughs> I mean, yes. you think Paris is rude? Try going yes. to Newark, New Jersey. And yeah. um, because they're just not exposed to enough and, and stereotypes exist for a reason. And it's for that small percentage that fit it. Yes, I agree completely. Yeah. So I, I hear you. And I love that answer because it it does continue our discussion about transformation and authenticity, because when you decided um, it was really time and you, you had, you had to, because of the divorce and raising children, what was the first thought when you thought, well, if I'm not going to act, this is what I want to do. Well, that wasn't hard because I'd already been to Ghana. So I'd been to Ghana before this. And the only reason I I uh, came back and kept acting was because I was very lucky that I just kept getting work. And I thought the business acumen in me was saying, keep working um, while it's so easy and try and 
raise the money that you need to raise to eventually be able to walk away. And this is when everything was fine and normal. And I was just, you know, I had my little boy and everything was just perfect. And then I had my other little boy and everything was just perfect. And then all of a sudden it wasn't overnight. It wasn't perfect. And so I had to think very quickly, but I'd already started going to school. I had never gone to college. I had come out of, I left home when I was 17 and I had always worked at something by myself. We didn't have any money. Um, I had to support myself. So I knew how to do that. And I, I thought to myself, I'm, I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to keep, um, you know, putting money aside and keep doing that. And so I was, you know, and this is a whole nother conversation about authenticity and about the stories we tell ourselves and what we believe to be true based on the stereotypes that um, we grow up with um, or the stories that other people have told us about ourselves. And I had always told the story to myself that I wasn't very bright, that I wasn't very clever because I hadn't done particularly well in high school. And I had, you know, was going through a lot of family trouble and I couldn't concentrate. I just wasn't interested in school. I, I had been an actor since I was so young that I was convinced um, that not only was that what I wanted to do, but it was more that it was the only thing I knew how to do. I was convinced that it was the only skill that I had because somewhere in my childhood I had started to um, or I was asked to uh, perform in some way um, way back before I can even remember. So really it was the only skill that I had and I, I did love it. I loved performing. I loved being on stage. I loved singing was my first love. Singing mm. was all I wanted to do. I wanted to be a singer, but I didn't have the money or the training or the background. So acting was the next best thing and it came easy to me. So that's what I did. But I always, um, I had had my, my family had gone through some, some um, trouble with um, child services when, when my brother and I were younger. So I was always um, somehow involved with, with that piece of, of, I think what you call over here, I think it's department of child services or something Mm -hmm. like that, but that had been a big part of my life. So I always, there was another part of me that really wanted to give back. I always wanted to advocate for children that couldn't advocate for themselves. Mm -hmm. And, but I put that aside often because it just didn't sort of work well with the other stuff that I was pursuing or doing, but it was always there. And so when I had my first son, um, I decided to take myself off and hopefully get a degree because I really felt that, if I was ever going to do this in the future, which I'd had planned to do, I wasn't going to be taken seriously because I was just, I, I really felt like I was just a stupid actress. That's all I thought. Mm-hmm. And that was constantly being reinforced by the time I'd come over here, because that's what people thought of actors, that we weren't very bright. We, we were just actors, you know, and I'd also come from a very short modeling career. So that didn't help because- no. I had that in in force and I always thought that was a bit of a joke. I I was always, you know, someone that thought someone's going to make a phone call and say, we're really sorry. We've made a bit of a mistake. You actually are not the person we're after. And I would joke about that all the time because I, 
I don't know if it was just being Australian, but I was always very self-deprecating and I didn't really fit that mold of, you know, having a lot of, you know, ego or, or, you know, vanity or all of that sort of stuff. So I, I always thought that someone was just going to tell me that there'd been a mistake. I thought that with, you know, I didn't, I luckily didn't have to do it for very long. Um, although it was, it was fun, but I just never took it seriously. And then, and then once my acting career began in, in Australia, um, you know, I was able to leave it behind, but it's always sort of stayed with me. So I was so worried about what people would think. And I thought if I ever wanted to, you know, get involved with any type of social impact or nonprofits, I mean, they would just look at me and go, what on earth do you possibly think you could offer us? And that narrative stayed with me. I honestly believed that until I met this wonderful um, guy who had already started his nonprofit, his own nonprofit in New York. And I'd said to him, I really, I want to go out of my comfort zone. And I, I really want to, and this was way before I had kids, way before I met my husband at the time. And I said, I, I, I want to go somewhere where I'm, I'm scared to go. I, I want to go somewhere where I can, where I feel I can help, but I don't think I'm going to be of any value. And he just looked at me and he said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, what, what could I possibly offer? I'm not a doctor. I'm not a teacher. Like, how do I go to these places and, and offer anything? All I am is a, is a, is an actress with no education. And he just said, no, you, 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 you go with your heart. You just lead with your heart. That's all you have to do. Get on the plane, find an organization you feel you're going to be safe in, go demand what you need to make that, you know, to make yourself feel comfortable and lead with your heart. Mm. And I was just like, oh, <laughs> yeah, we can do that. <laughs> That's a thing. I, yes, and I did. And then that just fueled when I got back. I was like, oh, I got to go and get a degree. I don't even know what I'm getting a degree in, but I need to. It was so broad. My interest was so broad, but I knew I wanted to do something to do with um with with kids and and also with women. I was so mm enamored by the women that I met on this trip that had so much hardship that were living in you know absolute poverty all the time and yet to this day seriously that six weeks I met the happiest people I've ever met in my entire life <laughs> isn't that surprising and yes and they had nothing except themselves and their family and their culture and just they just seemed to love life. It, it was a, it was just unbelievable to me. And when I got back, the last thing I could do was honestly consider carrying on in a career that, in my mind, wasn't giving back, um, and and I wasn't helping anybody. And that and that just really that really hurt my heart because I I, I really felt that in order to be authentic in that way, that after I had my my son, I thought I've got to have something to stand for. I always have this very strange thing where I think about if something happened to me and I was to to die, what would I leave behind and what would I stand for and what would my kids say about me at, at my celebration, I call it, because I don't mm -hmm. want to have a funeral. <laughs> and um, I've often asked them this as they've gotten older, you know, what would you say? And they've always said something ridiculously funny which is something I wouldn't want anyone to say out loud. At <laughs> but, you know, I think it's really important. I don't think we do that enough. I don't think we stop and I don't think we take stock of what it is we really want to stand for because I think we're so busy in life. And that's why I think second chances are so wonderful, that ability to be able to transform 
your life and transform mm -hmm. how you see yourself because we're constantly telling ourselves stories that aren't true. Second, third, fourth, fifth chances. I mean, I, right. I can't even tell you how many times I've remade myself as a result of seeing something that was inspiring to me or um, having an opportunity like what you had to open my eyes to another possibility that I could experiment with and explore. And there are a couple of things that popped into my head as you were telling the story. The first was thinking about your, this, this man who said, just lead with your heart. That's what you do. And it, that's what we do as, mm -hmm. as humans. And when it's time, you'll know, you'll know. And it, it seems to me that even though you saw yourself and maybe continue to see yourself as just an actor, there are a lot of people that get inspired by the, the role that you're playing. Not, I, I don't want to talk about people who are inspired to become actors because right. as much as I, I think that's a, a valuable career, I think what you're looking at is I, I keep coming back to the role that you had when you were in Vancouver that mm. inspired you to get the particular degree you have. Um, mm. Because maybe you you were inspired yourself and maybe you inspired other, particularly young women, to look at a career in that advocacy as an attorney, as a paralegal, as somebody who advocated for, for women and girls. And so I would just love to make sure that's clear to you in this moment, that that is something I feel very strongly about that you inspired people in your roles to do things like the Aaron Brockovich movie definitely inspired, I would hope, hundreds of thousands of people to do something a little differently, to, to advocate for people who didn't have voices and to be in places where they may not, and I'm air quoting, belong. Oh, yeah. And I, I really don't, I don't want to seem like I'm begrudging the whole you know, acting business and people that go on to be wonderful actors, because I really believe, I'd like to believe that especially women today and women before me, um, they gravitate towards the roles that they actually know are going to be impactful. I mean, we'd all be lying if we, if we didn't admit that that's when we feel the best about what we're doing. I mean, at the end of the day, we're just storytellers. I, for some reason felt comfortable pretending to be other people. And I realized along the way that when I was the best at what I was doing and the most convincing was when I really believed in the roles that I was playing. Now, some people would say, well, you obviously weren't a true actress because if you were a true actress, you would be able to make every single role that you were doing believable. And there's a, you know, there's a famous sort of saying, oh, well, she's just, or he's just playing himself. Well, sometimes when you are playing yourself, you don't even know you're playing yourself. You can, you can, you know, be cast in a role and all of a sudden you're realizing that this is coming so insanely naturally when yet you have no clue how to do any of this, but for some reason it's working. And I think there's something in that. I think that the best performances that that one, you know, that someone may love, that's what they're all about. They're all about you tapping into something for somebody else. And for me, the role I was playing in Vancouver, you know, had had an interesting story behind it because 
I had given myself a five-year goal. And in that five years, if I hadn't have got my own series that I was the star of or, a, or a, you know, a sort of a film, I guess, that was going to catapult me into something else, I that was it. I was going to quit. And I had already thought that round about 40, I might quit anyway and try and do something else. But I got that series right at the end of that fifth year. <laughs> and I was kind of thinking to myself, oh, I kind of hope I don't really, because I, then I would give me the excuse to, and I got this job and it was the best job I ever did. And at the end of it, I really felt like I could walk away. I didn't walk away because I was lucky that I just kept working. But, you know, this was early on. And I, again, I hadn't met my husband or had my family yet, but it really made me realize that I worked very hard on that job. I, I worked every day and it was the hardest work I've ever done in terms of just exhausting and not having a life. Um, but it was the most rewarding because in every single episode, I would find somebody who needed advocating for and I would go in and I would help the underdog. And along with a huge, big, you know, law firm, um, we would we would solve the problem. And I realized very quickly that, and this was in the middle of also understanding my political aspirations. And I mean, I would leave sometimes on a break and I would go to New York and I would march. It was when, um, after 9-11, when, you know, the US was about to invade Iraq. I was very much against that. I think if you ask people on that show now, they would say that I forced them into watching videos, Noam Chomsky videos about, you know, why it wasn't a surprise that we were invaded and all, and they just didn't want to have anything to do with it. There was like, Lisa, it's lunchtime. Let us just please have our lunch. And that's when I started to realize, oh my, I, I, I'm, I, I'm not meant to be doing this anymore. I'm, I'm very grateful that I have this platform, but there's so many other things I'm interested in and there's so many other things I want to learn about. And, and so for me, it was, it was very affirming that I can try and do this. I want to try and do this for real. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. I don't, I don't have the time to get a law degree, but I can, I can help. I feel at least try. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> you did get a degree and you got a couple of certificates along the way as well. So it wasn't just, the, the four-year degree, which is impressive on its own, especially later in life. I know my mom went back for her degree in nursing when she was almost 40 and graduated summa cum laude as a nurse, wow. four-year yeah. degree yeah. Um, with three teenagers at home. Right. So yeah, not, not an easy thing. And when I think about the, when I've interviewed people for jobs, when I was working at other organizations and had to be on interview committees, one of the things I would ask is, can you share a, an accomplishment with us? Something that you felt you worked really hard to get and, and tell us about that accomplishment. And one guy said, I went back to school when I was 32 and we had two little toddlers at home and my wife was very supportive and it I was working full-time and I went back to school for a two-year degree in computer science. And it was the hardest two years. And my family, outside of my wife and kids, obviously kids couldn't support him because they were toddlers. But he said, my family, my parents, my brother and my cousin, none of them were supportive. They kept wondering why I was doing what I was doing. Right. He said, but, but I worked really hard and I graduated with honors. 
with that two-year degree. And, and he said, and I feel really good about that accomplishment because it took a lot of managing my time very late nights. I still spent time with my kids. I still got to put them to bed at night when I wasn't studying. Mm -hmm. And the way that he told that story, all I could think was, I want this guy on my team. I don't even care what role he's going to play, but somebody who works that hard to get what he wants. And is that resilient and persistent in it? Why would you not hire this person? It's true. I hope you did. Did you? We did. We did, but not in the role that he had applied for. That's even better. (laughs) He wasn't right for that role. And I mentioned that at the committee. And then I said, but this other role that we're interviewing for next week would be perfect. And they all agreed. And we asked him to reapply because it was a government agency and it was the whole thing, but we did end up hiring him. And that's, and so when I heard your story, that was something that I found really inspiring and I would like to hear the story of when you graduated, that sense of accomplishment. What? So I'll back up a little bit because this is kind of a hard one. I'm asking for a very specific moment. And I, the reason I'm asking for this is that when I did my MBA, it was with a fourth grader and a sixth grader at home. I was working full time and I did it all online and it was really, really hard year uh, I crammed in all of my credits in two semesters with Western Governors University. It was it was really flipping hard. Yeah. And when I finished and got the the final grade and knew I could apply to graduate, I was so filled with relief that I had no room for happiness. Mm-hmm. I was just so overwhelmed with relief that I was done. And then it was that that secondary. Oh my gosh, did I finish everything? It just doesn't feel right to not have this to be doing while I'm working and raising children. But it wasn't until I actually walked on the stage, which my husband and my mom and my boss at the time said, go down to Salt Lake city, do the graduation. Otherwise it won't feel real. It won't, you'll, you need that conclusion to this period of struggle. And so I was like, yeah, okay. It seems silly. Cause I did the whole degree online, But okay, but then I could meet my mentor who had stayed with me every week through that year. Every week we would talk and she would listen to me pull out my hair and sometimes a little teary and sometimes just really, really joyful. So I did get to meet her, but it wasn't until we were on our way back. So it's about an eight hour drive from Salt Lake City to Helena. And it was pitch dark outside. We're going up this hill leaving the Ogden area. And the two boys were asleep in the back seat. My husband was mostly asleep. And I remember this vividly. I had this moment where I'm looking in front of me. It's gorgeous night sky, totally clear. You can see all the stars. It's Utah. So it's super dark. And all of a sudden I had this burst of joy, this realization that I did it. I accomplished this, but I needed that moment by myself in that dark moment to own it, mm-hmm. to realize it and to say, you did this, Sarah, this is really good. This is important. You talked about doing this degree for 15 years and you finally just buckled down and you did it and you did it really well, but it took that moment. So what was your moment? 
Well, first of all, congratulations on you achieving that because it is really hard and it is very hard as when you're a parent and you feel, I mean, I just, I've born with guilt. I have guilt about everything. And I always had guilt that I wasn't paying enough attention to my kids or I wasn't this, but for me, there was a lot of different moments. I didn't walk and I, I, I think it had a lot to do with the fact that I felt, I don't know what it was, why I didn't walk. I just didn't want any fanfare. I don't know why. I just, I don't know why. I really don't. I mean, that's something I'm going to have to sit in for for a little bit and figure it out. Mm -hmm. But I do have to say that my friends weren't very happy about it and thought that it was very unusual, but possibly kind of not surprising at the same time, knowing, knowing me. Typical Lisa thing. Yeah, it was a typical Lisa thing. And I uh, had a very dear friend who insisted that we were going to celebrate in some way. And that was important. I had to celebrate. I had to acknowledge the fact that I had been to Helen back and I'd gone through a divorce. I was a single parent and I took me five years to complete a degree. And I learned a lot about myself along the way. It turns out I'm not stupid after all. I'm actually quite bright. <laughs> that was really. Any of us who know you could have said that, but that yeah, was really you had to learn incredible. it yourself. That was incredible mm-hmm. to have, speaking of mentors, to have people that believed in me. I'd never had that before, ever. Mm-hmm. And I'd never had anybody that I felt was proud of me. I'd never had anybody who would fight for me or stand up for me. I just didn't have that in my life. So it was very, very indicative of, it it was just very important to me that I finish. And when my friend said to me, we're going to have, we're going to have a celebration. What do you want to do? And I said, I just want to dance. And I said, I want to go somewhere like back in the eighties where we'd go and we dance. (laughs) And I was never a big drinker. I never took drugs. I was, I was really square. Um, I said, I just want to dance. I want to find a space where I can play 80s music and just dance all night. I mean, I'll provide alcohol for people if they want it, but I just want to dance. She was like, let's do it. And then, of course, I, you know, I sort of lost the idea a little bit. She's like, no, 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 we're going to do it. And my friend at the time was sick and she didn't really want a lot of people to know that she was sick. We knew, but she wasn't being completely honest with us because she didn't want to worry us and she planned this party for me and it was absolutely everything I could have ever hoped for she organized all of it and then during the pandemic we we lost her so sorry that's okay so that was that was me walking that was me having her put on this party because she felt that I deserved it. I didn't think I did, but she did. And that was my graduation story. I danced for hours until I couldn't move my legs anymore. (laughs) And cleaning up was hard because my legs were stiff and I, (laughs) I, it, it was just a beautiful night with people that I loved and people that knew me and supported me and and 80s music. I mean, it doesn't <laughs> get better than that, really. 
<laughs> yeah, we're, just for our listeners, we're roughly the same age. We came of age in the 80s with um, Duran Duran and oh. uh, David Bowie. And yeah. yeah. Um, it was a wow. good time. So I'm tearing up too. Sorry. Partly, don't apologize. Don't ever apologize for, for that. Um, there are two reasons that was so powerful a story for me. One is that you talked about legacy. What are you leaving behind? What will people say? And every person at that party believed in your legacy in doing whatever you're going to do next, not what you had accomplished in the past, Mm -hmm. but knowing that you had a hero's journey ahead of you. That's, that's big. It's really big. And then the other part of that was that whole idea that um, she knew, what was her name? Danella. Danella. We're going to say her name a few times. Danella knew that you deserved something that you didn't believe you deserved. And so many times in our lives, it takes somebody else Mm -hmm. to see our magic and to see us for the, the gifts that we bring. Yeah, absolutely. I would say 90, 90% of the time, especially in our, up until we're in our forties, I, I, especially, I feel very strongly about that, that most of us don't know. And I am reminded of something I read a few years ago and I have no idea where I read it. Otherwise I would absolutely, you know, offer some sort of citation on the show notes, Right. but it was basically that when the hero begins his journey or her journey, they don't know they're the hero. No one in their circle necessarily knows they're the hero unless they're Gandalf, right? <laughs> like, unless there is some seer, which uh, in the real world, that doesn't happen. Steve Jobs, you know, he knew he had some greatness in him, but no one around him necessarily knew that. And he didn't actually know what that was going to look like until something happened, until he looked back at it. And all those little steps along the way, Danella knew that that celebration was a critical part of your journey. Yeah. And I am, will be forever grateful to her and to all the other people. And, and, you know, they were women, they were women that understood that had either been through something similar or, and I don't know what I would have done without to this day, the, those women, and I can count them on my hand, but, and men too, but mm-hmm. You know, I think that I came to that group a very different person to who I am now. And I've been through a very, very different experiences. And I think for me it also to have my boys there at the beginning. And, you know, I I, I think I had in my mind some romantic idea of me graduating and walking and them being there. But I think this was this was my version of, mm-hmm. of that kind of being with people that, cause I couldn't have brought them all with me. That was the thing. No. So no. this way I got to be with them, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, again, that's a, a critical piece of your celebration. And if we don't have somebody externally saying you need to celebrate this so many times, we just keep on going to the next goal. And um, that's part of what my cousin, Andrew Balick, who's a psychoanalyst out in the UK, who lives in London, 
he said that's part of imposter syndrome is that when we we don't celebrate those things that we need to celebrate because mm-hmm. we're always looking at the next goal and part of that means that we are very consistently out of our comfort zone because we're always going for the next thing where we're going to be a little uncomfortable until we figure it out and that puts us in that that mode of not being the expert and wondering what anybody else sees in us yeah i couldn't agree more i mean the whole imposter syndrome thing i didn't even know was a thing until someone i heard it on the radio I was like, oh my God, that's me. <laughs> well, I highly recommend <laughs> Melissa Hughes has a TEDx on the topic and, and she did a, a fabulous job. She talks about the neuroscience behind it. And then if you want to follow my cousin, Aaron, he he does it originally all the, these really cool psychoanalysis or the, the themes and topics and words and navigation of those, of that field on TikTok. TikTok. Um, but he also then will post it into Instagram and sometimes Facebook, but he's fabulously brilliant. So highly recommend that. So let's, let's come full circle. Yeah. When you think about um, what you want to do next, like how you want to spend your days, what does that look like? And it, it can include things that you've done in the past that really brought you great satisfaction, but also maybe something you haven't done yet that just really when you think about it lights you up I really like the conversation around rethinking the way we look at really big pictures I'm a really what I've learned about myself over the last few years is that I'm I'm a generalist I'm a big picture person and my big picture that I've always been really, really interested in. And and definitely since I've come to Los Angeles and come to the United States, I've been here 25 years now. I've actually wow. been here longer than I lived in Australia, which is very strange because that's really messing with my identity and, and <laughs> who I am. No kidding. And the big picture for me, what I seem to get very excited about and have done now for quite some time is the idea of rethinking the way we look at poverty as a, as a whole, as a big picture. And for me, the specifics in that, because obviously that's a, that's a very big picture to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I look at women and I, and I look at my own journey and I, and I look at how lucky I've been um, because I've had opportunities to, you know, really learn along the way about how to support myself and how to take care of myself. And I see a lot of women who just really need that support and that empowerment and what happens when you give women an opportunity to garner their own power through you know whether it be economical whether it be social whatever it might be and that's what's really interesting to me is that we can we can rethink the way the western world uh answers to the needs of the rest of the world through women and i and i think that it's it's obviously not a new idea because it's been happening for a really long time but it's 
the kind of bandwagon I really want to get on. And I really want to concentrate on how we can better prepare women economically, how we can, um, I'm a really big fan of organizations like Kiva. I've been a Kiva lender for a long time now, and I really believe in supporting women's ability to be entrepreneurs. I think that when we look at the climate crisis, we have to support women because they are a huge piece of being able to work through that. I think when we look at poverty, we have to look at data. We have to rethink how we direct a lot of funds to women. And I think on the local level, we can do the same thing, but we need to be consistently empowering women to understand that they can support themselves. And we're still really far behind when when it comes to the fact that we need to empower women to be independent. And how do we do that? Mm -hmm. We're still living in a man's world that is still very much, we're still very much, you know, entrenched in a patriarchy. And that doesn't seem to be getting any easier as we (laughs) move forward, move backwards. What I'm hearing from you is not necessarily the role you played in the show in Vancouver. What was the name of the show, by the way? Oh, it was called Just Cause. Just Cause. It sounds familiar. I think I might have come across it, but I'm going to have to find it and put a link somewhere in the show notes. It's pretty funny now watching it because it's a bit dated, but it still has a good message. It's with the wonderful um, Richard Thomas. Oh. It was John Boy Walton. Yes. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, We'll definitely put a link to that in the uh, show notes. Uh, at elkinsconsulting.com, along with a link for our listeners to connect with you, Lisa, on LinkedIn, yes. uh, because I, I know they'll want to learn more about your background, but I just want to come full circle and make sure we're really clear. It seems to me that where you would fit best in terms of a, a nonprofit or an agency uh, addressing poverty, particularly focusing on programs with women and children, women and young girls, is really at the level of facilitation and connection. So making sure the right people are talking to each other, understanding um, the, the way that we can more effectively and efficiently use funds because there's so many different pockets and programs out there that aren't talking to each other. And right. I think that's one of the biggest issues we have in our country is that there are nonprofits popping up everywhere that are serving all this very similar populations and they're serving them in different ways. But when we don't talk to each other, we can't have a holistic big picture approach to the issues. Um, Yeah. I think the world likes to tell people what they need. And I think that's the problem that we have is that we've spent many, many years, hundreds of years. I mean, colonization was was you know the beginning of it right. all we we you know burst in and told everybody that this is how you're going to live now this is the religion you're going to live by and this is what mm-hmm. we're going to we're going to take your children away and we're going to do this and we're going to do that and and unfortunately we're still doing that to a point and then there are amazing women I was talking to an amazing woman the other day uh, Mallory Brown who goes out literally and goes on the ground and does flash funding and and crowdfunding and links to these organizations that she's right there. She's, she's, you know, walking hand in hand with these women and 
talking about and I think social media is really powerful in that sense that now we can we can hear people's stories directly and we can hear the stories of women and we can find out what it is that we that they need and we can sit at the table with them and ask how we can support them rather than telling them what they need and I think the 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 foundation of how we can change the way we yeah I can see you um doing program development with an agency really understanding being very resourceful you are a very resourceful person you understand pretty quickly what information you need to collect and who needs to be at the table to make something happen um yeah i so, also i also really enjoy collecting the information i get very excited about yes so that's that's why i'm a big i'm a big promoter of education because i got my degree in my 40s and I, I think we're always learning. And, you know, I was reading a post the other day about people wondering whether college is still important. And I ended up writing back, you know, very fervently because I just believe that, you know, even if my degree doesn't make me a lawyer or doesn't make me a doctor or a teacher or whatever it might be, I would not give back those five years for anything. They were right. the most extremely important and wonderful years of my mm. life and yes. it not only taught me so much but it was just so education is so beautiful and so valuable I, I think where we get wrapped around the spoke is when we talk about um higher ed as an overall overarching thing when it really depends on the higher ed uh, my yeah. experience in higher ed has been all very positive there are lots of people that have been totally messed up by it. They've gone to private schools and gotten into such serious debt. They had really bad advisors. They didn't go in with the understanding of what they were getting into. And so I think it's just so critical right now that people talk through what they want out of their education and, and sometimes be open-minded enough to go in to know this is what you want. And this is, these are the other opportunities that are going to come toward you. So don't close off your, your eyes and ears to other right. possibilities. Right. Yeah. And we have to support women so that they can go back to school or go to school. And we have to, you know, be constantly working on childcare and making that possible, especially for single women and especially exactly. for women that have children that can't, you know, that don't have somebody there to stay at home with the kids while they go off and learn and, you know, online exactly. is great, but also being in person at school is really special. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed. Lisa, this has been such a pleasure as I knew it would. Yes, and I'm been great really fun. Thank you. grateful for your time today. Uh, for our listeners, as I mentioned, uh, Lisa's contact information via LinkedIn will be in the show notes associated with this podcast at elkinsconsulting.com. Lisa, thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for listening to Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will. I'm putting some finishing touches on a new course, Get the Offer, Job Interview Storytelling, that will be available online in early fall 2022. It is so important that this course is truly relevant, helpful, and useful for my clients. So I'd love your help. Would you please email me at sarah at elkinsconsulting.com or complete the form that's linked on the blog post associated with this podcast episode to add your ideas for the course? I'd love to know your biggest challenges when it comes to job interviews, 
so the content of my online course is exactly what you need. I appreciate your help. Thanks in advance. Now listen to me, honey, while I say, how could you tell me?